Yes, good morning and a special welcome to those who are joining us on Zoom. It's great to have you with us in this second part of a series called Following Jesus. And if you didn't hear the first talk, um, I told the story of one of the most unlikely things that happened in the New Testament where Paul, the apostle, traveled an astonishing 1,400 miles from his home base in Antioch to a city called Corinth. And when he got there, he was on his own. And he decided he wanted to create a Christian community in this city. It was the most unlikely venture you could possibly imagine because this was a city that had no understanding of Christianity. No one had ever preached the gospel there before. And it was a very liberal place. Lots of money, lots of trade, lots of easy sex, lots of easy ways to make money, lots of old uh, ancient world's version of drugs. Uh, Lots of possibility for a relaxed lifestyle, and this was the place that Paul came to all on his own to preach about Christianity. Now, fortunately, when he got there, he met some other people, and they formed a team, and he got going, and he managed to form a church, which was absolutely amazing. And last week, I outlined, and I just repeated very briefly, the fact that he prioritized, in speaking to these people in Corinth, he prioritized one thing above all else, to explain very clearly what Jesus had done on the cross, the message of the cross he describes it as. And he points out in in a letter that he wrote later on that lots of people didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that he explained that the only way to be reconciled to God was through Jesus Christ. That there was a real human need, that there was a real human gap. And even as I was speaking last week, somebody in the congregation had a picture during the worship which wasn't shared publicly, and I'll just share it now because it's quite useful just as a reminder. I wonder if you know the Iron Bridge. Many of you know the Iron Bridge in, uh, in the Iron Bridge Gorge. The first iron frame bridge in the world built in the 1770s. And this, in this picture, um, Ian, who had this picture, he could see uh, this bridge over the gorge, the, the steep sides uh, of, the, uh, of the land towards the river, which, uh, which is part of the terrain in, the, in that part of the world. And as he saw this bridge, he then imagined not a bridge, but a cross. And he imagined the gorge not just being 100 foot, 200 foot down, but just an enormous distance down. And he could see in his mind's eye during the worship that it's only Christ who bridged the gap between one side, us, and the other side, God's righteousness and his forgiveness. That's the message that Paul preached in Corinth. And for those who believed, there were three things that they needed to do. They needed to be baptized. Of course, we've had a baptism recently, haven't we? Baptism is very important. They needed to be, first of all, converted by the Holy Spirit's power, secondly, baptized, and thirdly, commit themselves into the local church, a form of kind of membership. And as Paul was there for 18 months in Corinth, he said to these new believers, look, there are several things that really matter now that you've become Christians. And one of the things that mattered that Paul spoke about, which was quite countercultural, was he said, here is the Christian understanding of sexual relationships. God made marriage between a man and a woman the place for sexual relationship and the nurturing of a family. 
And Paul also taught very extensively about singleness. He was tremendously proud that he was single. And he spoke of it in the letter, actually, 1 Corinthians. And he said, as you're a Christian, you're either married or you're single. These are the two states of being that are in accord with God's will in the church. Now, you couldn't be more countercultural in Corinth than to say things like that. But that's what he said. Because they were used to a really free and easy lifestyle in the city. It was probably the most free and easy city in the whole of the Roman Empire at the time. Fueled by money, trade, travel, people moving around, the sort of things that make free and easy lifestyle easier. Now, Paul subsequently left the city. And he left this little church, people who'd been converted, baptized, joined as members, plus other people who joined in the community who weren't part of the baptized community, but they were friends, they were, they were welcomed into the church meeting, and he left these people to uh, develop their faith. He had to go off to other places. Then somebody came to him and said, something's gone wrong in Corinth. He heard from messengers who came to him. He was miles away in another place at the time. And they described to him something happening in the church, which is the trigger for the letter, 1 Corinthians, that we're studying, that horrified Paul. Here's what it is. In the church, there was a man who was a member of the church who was committing incest with his stepmother. His father had remarried and he was having sex with this woman. States it very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. She wasn't in the church as far as we can tell. He was and the church was tolerating the situation. Quite against Paul's instructions. And this is the trigger that caused him to write the letter 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 26, he describes the situation in the Corinthian church as a present crisis. Because it was causing so much difficulty in the church that this situation was being tolerated that he genuinely feared that the church would collapse and disintegrate in a short period of time unless it was addressed. So he wrote a crisis intervention letter to Corinth. And he said to the people, you should not be tolerating this behavior if this man doesn't change You'll actually need to remove him from the church family, exclude him. If you read in 1 Corinthians 5, you'll read, uh, in the first part, you'll read the story, you'll see what his instructions were. And he said, look, if you let this situation continue, it's like the yeast that you put into the dough. And as you make the bread and as you knead it and as you bake it, all that yeast gets all the way through and the whole thing is influenced. The whole church is influenced by this one situation which shouldn't exist. So that's the situation that Paul wrote into. <clears throat> now this leads us to 
the passage that we're going to look at today. And what we're studying, in a sense, is how Paul dealt with a sexually liberal culture in Corinth. And our theme is right relationships. And we're going to try and work out what can we learn from Paul about how the church should be in its understanding of relationships. Because we quickly recognize that the situation he found in Corinth has a lot of echoes with a modern situation in a Western society. And so we read, because he is very clear, following on from talking about this particular case, we leave that behind, and we now look at his more general teaching, which is what we're going to focus on today. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. They'll just be coming up on the screen. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in this passage, he's basically saying, your life has changed. It's a real material change, and your behavior changes according to what has happened through the power of the cross. You're washed. If you were involved in a lifestyle that was contrary to the way God wanted, um, and you changed, it's all been forgiven. It's gone. It's not part of you anymore. You're a new people. You need to think in terms of being a new people and living a different way. Washed, justified, sanctified. Just over 20 years ago, I was preaching here in this church, and a man walked in who I'd never seen before. And I noticed him as he came in. His head was bowed down. He wouldn't look up and acknowledge you, and he sat just over there, I remember it very vividly, with his head down all the way through the service. And as I preached, his head stayed down, never looked at the preacher once through the whole talk. And I decided I wanted to make some contact with him at the end, which I did. It's the first time he'd been to the church. And he was deeply affected by the message and the subsequent messages about the cross, exactly the same message that we're talking about today. And as I got to know this man, sadly he's passed away now, and he gave me permission to tell his story many years ago. He found Christ, and he said, well, look, I've lived a very immoral sexual lifestyle and gave me graphic details of all the things he'd been involved with over many years. And he wept many tears. But he engaged with the truth that I just read to you. You are washed, sanctified, justified, And gradually, through a period of time, the shame and the guilt was washed away by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he came into the meetings, the major difference was the head wasn't down anymore. 
He could lift up his head and he could lift up his hands and little joy began to come into his life. And we walked the journey from shame to forgiveness to freedom to know the power of the cross. Sadly, he died subsequently from other medical issues prematurely and I took the funeral here in the same building. It was a time of Sadness, but also great joy. It's a life redeemed in the way that Paul described. But Paul said to the Corinthians, once you're redeemed, you've got to think differently about sex and sexual relationships at a fundamental level. About the same time that this happened, more than 20 years ago, in a completely different context, I was traveling, visiting some people in another part of the country, visiting a Christian family and the husband said to me I want, I want to go for a walk with you can we just step out so he stepped out for a walk and he said to me in effect you know I've met somebody at work and there's a lot going a lot of potential in a new relationship I'm thinking what I'm going to do where I'm going to go and I could see the whole of his life was going to collapse if he followed the direction that he was tempted to go on so we talked we had a deep talk and he made a very clear decision no I'm not going that way because I've become a believer turned his back on that opportunity <clears throat> and more than 20 years later that family still stands I'm still in touch with them. This is the sort of thing where Paul spoke clearly. And he wanted to explain the significance of these things for Christian discipleship. So let's just press on in, in the passage a little bit further. There's a few other things to notice. Um, verses 12 through to verse 17. I have the right to do anything you say. Aha. Uh -huh. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. But I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, says Paul, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God Raise the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us up also. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The fundamental point that Paul is making here is that God designed sexual relationships to be more than an immediate physical connection. They have spiritual power and significance. That's the underlying point of what Paul is saying. And so the modern tendency to separate sex from meaning and long-term commitments and 
relationships and so on, and to make the areas very gray around these areas is quite contrary to the way God actually designed it. Sex has spiritual power, and that spiritual power works against you if you engage in relationships, sexual relationships outside marriage, and it works for you if you cultivate an intimate physical relationship within marriage. And Paul makes that point very clearly in the next passage at the beginning of chapter 7, which we're not going to get onto. But it can work against you. You find that more has happened than you realize. The connectivity, the shame, the guilt, the confusion, the secrecy, all the problems that come multiply because of the power that God has given to the act of sexual union. And the second thing we notice about this passage, which is really interesting, is that the human body matters very much to God. My body matters very much to God. My faith is not just in my spirit. It's not just a spiritual salvation. My faith, your faith, engages your whole body. In fact, the body is for the Lord, says Paul in this passage. We're actually almost like limbs of Jesus Christ, a hand and a leg. All, we're all part of that, of that unity of the body of Christ, but our, our very physical being belongs to the Lord in its physicality, in every dimension of its, of its physicality. That includes sexuality, but many other things as well. The human body matters very much to God. It matters so much that one day when you died, you'll be raised again physically. He says that in the passage. That's one of the significances of the physical resurrection. Christianity affirms the human body at the absolute fundamental sense far more than we possibly could realize. And that's why there's a blessing of the physical union in marriage. It's wholly good. And that's why we need to preserve the sanctity of our bodies, not only in our sexuality and our sexual relationships, but, and if I can extend it beyond this because it's very important and it's relevant to, to all the other aspects of the use of our body. It really matters what we eat and what we drink and how we look after the well-being of our body. It really matters what my hands are used for. Are they going to be used for violence and anger and cursing and striking the finger at people? Or are they going to be used for affirmation, for care, and for love? That's why worship, when the Holy Spirit moves, worship becomes more physical. In every culture in the world, there's different manifestations in different culture, but when the Holy Spirit moves, worship becomes more physical. As I prepare to worship on a Sunday morning, I'm also preparing my body because I might be kneeling. I might be raising my hands up. I will certainly be singing. I certainly might close my eyes. And these physical actions are of immense importance because our body really matters. We express our faith through our bodies. 
and we express our love for people through our bodies. And so Paul is striking something very, very deep in this passage. He's not afraid to speak plainly to people. Have you noticed that about Paul? I've noticed about many modern preachers, they prefer to avoid certain parts of Paul's teaching. This is one of them. But we can't afford to do that. Because it matters. It really does matter. Verses 18 to 20 to conclude our study. Free from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What an astonishing thought. You're damaging yourself. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, says Paul, honor God with your bodies. Now, this is all so countercultural that you wonder how did Paul get away with it in Corinth? Well, he had the certainty of his convictions. And so he challenged that man who was committing incense, said, we've got to get that guy out of the church or changing his ways totally. And he spoke plainly to the Corinthians, if you want a living, strong church, we have to have a good understanding of the physical body and a good understanding of human relationships as God planned it. Now, this talk is going to be followed by a seminar next Sunday evening. And in that seminar, I'm going to investigate a related question. I'm going to make the assertion that in our sexually liberated society, all is not well. And I'm going to demonstrate that in a number of different ways. Through research and through statistics and through observations and through key writings from secular people. Let me say that although we've had a sexual revolution for 60 years in our nation, and although the glitz is still there in the marketing of it through the media in all sorts of different ways, under the surface, and many of you know this perfectly well, all is not well. Our relationship culture in the UK is very fragile. The family unit is very vulnerable. Children have paid a tremendously heavy price for that vulnerability, and I'll demonstrate that. And there are oceans of fatherlessness within our society because of the paths we've gone down. Everything is not well. The church has a very creative, positive, redemptive message for our society if it dares to speak it out. Paul said very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, 
that what he was saying was addressed specifically to the church. He said, we don't have the rights in the church to tell other people how they should live. He very specifically says that we need to have a very gracious and open attitude to people in society who live by totally different values. And let me just say, this is incredibly important. And we have a framework in our modern society to do that. It's called the Equalities Act of 2010. A piece of legislation that helps us live in a multicultural, multi-value society where people have different approaches. I'm not talking here about what happens outside this morning, the church. What I'm talking about is what happens here. What is our responsibility? To build Christian community with a relationship culture that reflects biblical truths. And many people say, and some people have said to me, the church in the West won't survive if it sticks to its biblical sexual ethics. And my answer is, the church in the West won't survive if it doesn't stick to its biblical sexual ethics. We need to take the same approach as Paul, who in Corinth was fearless and said, this is the community that God wants to build. And these are the principles upon which he wants to build it, where people as single people are honored and respected and have a great place in the community. And people who are married are upheld and encouraged to, to sustain that marriage in the long term and to nurture families within it and build a big community around those. Around those. And he, the very person propagating this, was never married was always single and incredibly proud of being single. So what I'm arguing is we need to be as bold as Paul, who dared to build a radical discipleship community of faith right in the middle of Corinth, whilst relating creatively and respectfully to people around, outside the church, who lived very different lifestyles. We'll explore some more of this in the seminar on Sunday evening next week. And I invite you to join us in person here or online. And we'll look more closely at what's really going on in our society. And some of the things we'll discover will be quite shocking and very significant and give perspective. But here we're focused primarily on the scriptures. Let's stand. As we finish, I'm going to invite the musicians back.